Welcome to Ragbag's Bonus Bag. My name's Frank Burton. You have arrived at your final destination. This is the final part of the audiobook version of my novel, Everything I Am. One final request from me. Please get yourself onto Amazon. Buy a paperback copy of Everything I Am. Give it to someone you love and they will love the book. This is how I'm going to take over the world. So thank you in advance for helping me to do that. Right. Here's the final part of Everything I Am. Chapter 31 A bunch of stuff happened over the next few years, but none of it's relevant to this particular story, so let's fast forward a decade to the summer of 2019. I'd been doing my podcast for a year and a half, and I was making a bit of money from various sponsorships, but sadly these deals had a tendency to end acrimoniously. Administrating and negotiating these various agreements with advertisers was proving to be a full-time job in itself. I was considering scrapping the whole thing when I received an email out of the blue from someone calling themselves Nathaniel Anniversary Pylon, who described himself as being a fan of the show, and offered to sponsor the podcast on a long-term basis. I was dubious and very nearly deleted the email, but Nathaniel made a couple of very specific references which at the very least proved he was a regular listener. I didn't have the heart to ignore a piece of fan mail, so I replied saying, Hi Nathaniel, I am glad you enjoyed the podcast and I am pleased that you got in touch. I don't want to discourage you from sponsoring me, but I have a few reservations about taking an honest man's money. I usually charge an advertiser £5,000 per episode, which is a lot to ask from a stranger. I was tempted to add that £5,000 is an absolute rip-off in terms of the exposure the advertisers get. I never lied to anyone outright, but I seem to have the ability to make the ragbag listenership sound larger and more prestigious than it was. Maybe there was something in my genes that made me behave that way. Uncle Claude had always described my dad as being a good salesman, and judging by my mum's Airbnb profile, she had a business brain too. But I didn't say any of that. Nathaniel replied half an hour later, Don't worry about the money. I have lots to spare, and as I say, I absolutely love your work. I've read your books and everything. To prove that I'm serious, I've paid you for three episodes in advance. I've sent £15,000 to your PayPal account. Please consider this a donation to the greatest podcast on the planet. Regards, Nathaniel Anniversary Pylon. P.S. I'm not a stranger. I feel like I've gotten to know you very well. To say I had mixed feelings about this message would be something of an understatement. I didn't reply straight away. I needed to think before I accepted Nathaniel's offer. I'd recently moved out of the flat I'd spent most of my adult life living in and officially became of no fixed abode, living out of a camper van. I was currently parked up somewhere outside Aberystwyth. I locked up the van and went off for a walk on the sand dunes. It was that P.S. that worried me. That and the hyperbole about how he loved the show 
greatest podcast on the planet indeed. It sounded like he wanted something from me, but instead of asking for anything, he'd given me £15,000. I sat down on a rock and pulled out my phone. I read Nathaniel's email again and replied, Hi Nathaniel, I must say it's very generous of you to donate so much. As a regular listener, you'll know I've run into hot water once before by engaging with a superfan. As I'm sure you're aware, this ended very badly and I do not wish to fall into the same trap again. I would find it very reassuring if you would let me know your real name and perhaps a few personal details so at the very least I'll know you're not anyone sinister. Nathaniel had replied by the time I'd made my way back to the van. I sat in my bunk and opened it up. LOL, said the message. What makes you think Nathaniel Anniversary Pylon isn't my real name? I'm joking, of course. I do have a real name, and I wish I could tell you what it is, but the fact of the matter is I'm very famous. I don't want to put you in a position where you know who I am, but have to keep it secret. I'd willingly share my identity with you if I thought it would help boost your listenership by having my name attached to it. Unfortunately, I think if people found out I was somehow involved, it would be something of a blow to your credibility. Sadly, although I'm a wealthy man, I am without a doubt not cool. There was something about the way those last two words have been capitalised that made me laugh out loud. I wrote a quick four-word message back. Is that you, Benedict? Nathaniel replied, LOL, of course not. Benedict is much cooler than me. I replied, you're not Ed Sheeran, are you? Nathaniel replied, no comment. That's not me admitting to being Ed Sheeran. I'm opting out of a potential celebrity guessing game. I do hope you'll accept my donation. I didn't need to think about it anymore. I wrote back, Yes, Nathaniel, I wholeheartedly accept. Thank you. And so began one of the greatest periods in my life. I was indeed hosting the greatest podcast on the planet. I didn't have to deal with the headache of attracting advertisers anymore, which meant I could focus on being more creative. I started writing a new book, this book, the one that you're listening to right now. I started doing my video series, The Ragbag Rambler. I was eating well, exercising regularly, sleeping soundly in my bunk, having proper dreams. I spent most of my time alone, but I was happy with that. I enjoyed my own company. Sometimes I'd question my motivations for packing up and leaving everything behind. Was I doing what my dad had done all those years ago? He used that expression, flying off the grid. But I wasn't exactly running away. I had nothing to run away from. I didn't speak to my family other than occasional calls to Uncle Claude. No girlfriend, no real friends either. There was just me and that's the way that I'd chosen to live my life. But where was I going? Was I looking for my dad? Travelling round the country in the hope of bumping into him? That's assuming he was still in the UK. He wouldn't be the first person to get out of the country without a passport. Or was I looking for someone else? And why did I keep coming back to Aberystwyth? I knew the answer to those last two questions. 
Heidi had left all those years ago in much the same way my dad did. She packed her things and disappeared. She didn't leave a note. I never heard from her again. It had always struck me as weirdly out of character. I understand breaking up with someone is a tough thing to do, but she wasn't the sort of person who'd shy away from difficult conversations. I'd always resisted looking her up online. Neither of us were on social media at the time, but it's likely that that had changed. She was bound to have some kind of digital presence. But I didn't want to find out about her that way. I liked the idea of bumping into her one day, randomly in the street. would say a polite hello and catch up a little bit. She'll be married with kids or something, still working in HR and doing her paintings on the side. I'll tell her about my books and stuff and we'll go our separate ways, not exchanging numbers but happy to have crossed paths one last time. That probably wouldn't happen, but I did have a theory that when she left, she went back to live with her family. She's from Aberystwyth. Anyway, I didn't spend a great deal of time thinking about her, and I didn't spend a great deal of time in Aberystwyth. I'd go there now and again, then get back in the van and drive somewhere else. Leaving there, having failed to bump into Heidi, made me feel a little bit sad. Just a little bit, not a lot. And not for a very long time, usually just a couple of hours. Then, I'd think about something else. No one has the perfect life, but my life in the summer of 2019 was as close to perfection as it possibly could have been. Chapter 32 One day in September, I was staying in a campsite in the Lake District when Uncle Claude came to visit. We recorded an episode of Ragbag together. For some unfathomable reason, my market research had suggested Uncle Claude's previous appearances had proven to be a big hit with the listeners, so I decided to have him on the podcast every now and again as a means of keeping the numbers up. It wasn't a horrendous experience. We had fun for the most part. There wasn't much of an evening left by the time we'd finished, but we sat and had a drink and listened to some music. Then Uncle Claude said, Listen, Frank, I'm glad you agreed to have me on the show, and it's very nice to see you after all this time. It would be very good if we could keep up this light-hearted banter, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to get serious for a moment. Oh dear, I said, what's happened? Nothing's happened as such, said Claude, but I've made an important decision, and I'd like your blessing before going ahead. Okay, I said, you have my blessing. I haven't told you what it is yet. No, but I honestly can't think of any decision you could make that I wouldn't give my blessing for. It's your life. Well, in this case, it's somebody else's life. Okay. There's no easy way of saying this, Frank, but I'd like to apply to have your dad declared dead. Really? How would you feel about that? I don't know. Honestly, it's never crossed my mind to do that. I don't think of him as being dead. I think we're all going to have to face up to the fact that he probably is. You can apply to have a missing person declared dead in absentia, as they call it, 
if no one's seen them for seven years. Your dad has been missing for fifteen. That is a long time, I agreed. When you put it like that, it makes total sense. Go for it. Are you sure? said Claude. I don't see why not. I presume you want to do it so there's some kind of closure, and I wouldn't want to deny you that. I got mine years ago. Time for you to have yours. Thank you, Frank. How does my mum feel about it? I said. She doesn't care either way. I've told her she'll get his pension, or she can apply for it at the very least. We've always used a reputable provider, but I've never quite figured out the ins and outs of when it comes to unique circumstances like this one. Well, that's fine then. Just go ahead. There's something else I like to do when it's all been made official. I want to organise a memorial service. It's not a funeral. There's no one to bury for a start. It's a memorial, part of this closure thing you were talking about. Nice idea. Your mum doesn't want to come. You're invited, obviously. No pressure. Yeah, I'll come. Sounds like a fun party. It's not a party, Frank. Celebration, I mean. That's a good word. Celebration, yeah. I like that. Shortly after the Uncle Claude episode went out, Nathaniel emailed to tell me how much he'd enjoyed it. He wrote, You mentioned that you're writing a new book. I'd love to read it. Feel free to send me a bit of what you're working on. I used to be part of a writer's workshop once upon a time. Maybe I can give you some feedback. Usually I'm very protective over early drafts, but I was getting excited about this new project and I really felt like it was getting somewhere. I'd written most of the story so far. I got as far as discovering my mum's Airbnb profile and was wondering where I was supposed to go next with it. It's lucky, in a way, that Uncle Claude was arranging this memorial service. I could go there and describe what happened, and it would be kind of a heartfelt goodbye to my dad and a nice way of ending the book. Obviously, I'd have to put the writing of the book on hold until he was officially declared dead. So in the meantime, it would be handy for someone with a writing background to take a look. I emailed Nathaniel back attaching the Word document with the story so far. Two days later, Nathaniel emailed me with a simple couple of sentences. I finished your book. It made me cry. I emailed back. In a good way? He replied. It's a masterpiece. I've sent you some more sponsorship money. I checked my PayPal account. Nathaniel had sent me £20,000. I emailed back. Thanks for the money and the compliment. I don't really need that much. I almost added, Also, masterpiece is a bit of a stretch, but I didn't want to trash my new friend's opinion. You deserve it, came the reply. I have way too much money. That made me feel a bit better. I'd done the lakes now and was wondering where I should travel to next. Aberystwyth again? Too soon, surely. But if that's where my heart was, why go anywhere else? But my heart definitely wasn't in Aberystwyth. I was following a half-hearted, sentimental yearning to make some kind of casual peace with my ex-girlfriend 
despite the fact that my love for her was long gone. If I'd been in loads of other relationships since then, I probably wouldn't have been feeling that way. Heidi was significant because she was a one-off. Or maybe that's not why I was thinking of her now. Maybe I wanted to see her one last time because she'd left in the exact same way that my dad had left. Bearing this in mind, I was probably treating Heidi like a proxy for my dad because I knew deep down, as Claude had already suggested, that my dad was probably dead. And as much as I tried to ignore the suspicion, there was a strong possibility he'd run away to kill himself. I would never know his reasons for doing so, and I'd never have an explanation one way or another. I'd been holding on to this romantic notion that my dad, one of the least subtle people to walk the face of the earth, had successfully managed to escape detection as a missing person for a decade and a half. This was simply wishful thinking. Claude was right. Would meeting up with Heidi change any of this? Absolutely not. What I needed to do was face the facts. My dad was never going to come home. I would never see or hear from him again. No one would because he was dead. I couldn't believe it had taken me 15 years to finally admit that to myself. Maybe it was time to start grieving. I already knew what grief was like. I'd lost Noddy after all. And despite the fact I knew literally nothing about the man, he was much more important to me than my dad ever was. I was devastated when Noddy passed away. Sometimes I'd entertain the idea that Noddy was alive too. But I knew that was just as much wishful thinking as the presumption that my dad was still around. My dad was dead and driving to Aberystwyth wasn't going to change that. I wondered which point in the UK was furthest from Aberystwyth, Land's End or John O'Groats. I settled on Land's End for the weather. According to the sat-nav, it was eight hours drive. I could be there by the early hours of the morning if I did it all in one go. Four hours later, around 10pm, I was sitting in a service station on the M5 reading an email from Nathaniel Anniversary Pylon. I'd really like to meet you, he said. It does mean revealing my identity, but I trust you enough not to announce it to the public. And even if you do, it doesn't really matter. I'd just really like to meet. I'm currently staying in a hotel in London, if you happen to be anywhere near there. I checked the sat-nav. Depending on the precise location of Nathaniel's hotel, I was a couple of hours away. Hang on a minute. Was I actually considering this? What about Land's End? I emailed back. Just answer me one question, and please be completely honest. Are you Ed Sheeran? The reply pinged back. LOL, definitely not. I replied, how late are you planning on staying up? I'm a couple of hours outside London, depending on where you are. Let me know which hotel you're at. Nathaniel replied, wow, thanks for doing this. 
he sent me a link to a five-star hotel in central London. According to a brief Google search, a room there would have been £750 per night. Nathaniel really did have too much money. I replied, I'll be there sometime after midnight. I also passed on my mobile number so we could hook up when I got there. I spent the next couple of hours trying to focus on the road, all the while wondering which famous person I was on my way to meet. Most likely it would be someone I'd never heard of. I'd spent most of my adult life ignoring popular culture and current affairs. I was worried this would be some kind of con designed to trick me into surrendering all my money. But that wouldn't make any sense. Literally, all the money I had left in my account was less than the amount Nathaniel had already given me. I'd just have to whack some tunes on and wait until I got there, so that's what I did. At half past midnight, I pulled into the hotel car park. I checked my phone for a response from Nathaniel. His message read, I'm waiting for you in the lobby. Just a warning, Frank. You'll recognise me as soon as you see me. You'll be a little bit shocked, I expect. Not too much, I hope. I've told a few fibs in order to get you here tonight. Sorry about that. Oh, for God's sake, I said out loud. You could have just told me. I hopped out of the van, slamming the door behind me. I marched straight through the automatic doors. My dad was sitting cross-legged in an armchair. He smiled. He still had all of his teeth. Hello, Frank, he said. Chapter 33 Next thing I knew... Me and my dad were sitting next to each other in the hotel bar. He had his arm around my shoulder and I was looking at the floor. Breathe, he was saying softly. What just happened? I said. Don't worry, he said. I'm not worried, I said. I'm a bit concerned I might have had a seizure and I lost my driving license again. What? he said. You have epilepsy. I didn't know about that. I was diagnosed after you disappeared, I said. It's a complicated business. I'm sorry, he said. I'm sorry I wasn't there. Wasn't there for what, I said. The epilepsy diagnosis or... Let's just take a minute, he said. You're still coming round from whatever it was that happened. Can you describe what happened to me, I said. Like I say, I really can't afford to lose my driving license. Literally, my home depends on it. You stopped talking, said my dad, and you stopped moving, so I kind of led you into the bar. You sat down next to me. How long ago was that? About five minutes, that's all. Okay, I said, lifting my head. We can get away with that, let's call it a grey area. Can I get you a drink, said my dad. I think that's the least I deserve. What would you like? Maybe a whiskey or a vodka or something with alcohol that will do the trick. Leave this with me, said my dad. He returned with half a pint of lager. That's not what I asked for, I said. 
I get the impression you don't usually drink, he said. In which case, you'll get on very well with this. Okay, I said you guessed correctly, thanks. I took a couple of sips. What was the point of you pretending to be called Nathaniel, I said. Well, I had to, said my dad. Or I thought I did. Before I read your book, I assumed you'd be incredibly angry about me disappearing and wouldn't want to know. Also, I didn't know if I could trust you to keep this a secret. So, this is a secret meeting we're having here. You're not officially coming out of hiding. My dad shook his head vigorously. Absolutely not. No one can know what I'm up to. Why not? For one thing, I'm enjoying myself too much. Do you know Uncle Claude is applying to have you declared dead? My dad sniggered. You're okay with that, I said. I'm surprised Claude didn't get around to doing it sooner. Bless him, he does have a sentimental streak. He was probably holding out, hoping I was still alive. You are still alive. Alive? But playing a very convincing dead man, wouldn't you say? You certainly have me convinced. And that's despite all your investigations. I must say, Frank, I'm very impressed that you managed to glean all that information about my friends and the flat. I had help, I said. So you did, my God. I told you your book made me cry, but I didn't mention how many times. I cried when Noddy died. I cried when you interviewed poor old Ben. I cried when your mum threw you out of the ass. Then I cried again when you sat at the window watching her dance. Is that all true, by the way? Is that how it happened? What do you think? I said. Well, all the stuff you wrote about me seems entirely accurate, so I would say yes, it's all true. I nodded. I can't believe you remembered all those details from your childhood, he said. I've forgotten most of it myself. I suppose people remember things they consider to be important, I said. Yeah, said my dad thoughtfully. And maybe people forget the things they'd rather not remember. I have to say I completely forgot the cream egg joke. I cried when I read that too. With laughter? No, with genuine remorse. It seemed like it caused you some genuine personal anguish. And I'm really sorry I made you feel that way. I got over it, I said, but thanks for saying that. I wish I could remember it as well. You had that whole conversation with Claude where you speculated on what it could have possibly meant. I wish I could tell you, but I don't remember saying it. I'm not surprised, I said. It was an off-the-cuff remark. How many of those have you made in your lifetime? Few too many, I expect. You can't be expected to remember them all. Some things are best left forgotten. I polished off the rest of my half-pint in a couple of gulps. Thanks for getting in touch anyway, I said. It's really good to see you. It's great to see you too, Frank. It's amazing to hear your voice on the podcast and everything, but obviously that's just one way. I have so many questions, I said, but I really don't know where to start. Now is not the time, said my dad. You've had a big shock tonight. Also, it's late. You've had a long drive. There's an extra bed in my room. You get your head down. Wouldn't mind another drink first, I said. Make it a pint this time. 
and it's okay with the epilepsy and everything. It's fine. I don't even take the meds anymore. That's good to hear. My dad popped off to buy a pint of lager and an orange juice for himself. Like I say, don't ask me any questions tonight, he said as he sat down. We'll talk tomorrow over breakfast. I'll tell you everything you need to know. If we're going to talk tonight, let's get trivial. Just to warn you, I'm not very good at small talk. I'm sure you'll do fine, he said. Now, what's your favourite brand of crisps? Brand or flavour, I said. Either. Skips, I said. Or sour cream and onion Pringles. Favourite all time would be this limited edition pack of Walkers they did for a while when I was a kid. Tomato ketchup flavour. It tasted nothing like tomato ketchup. They were absolutely brilliant. No idea why they stopped doing them. Right, the Melissa, said my dad. You'd be amazed at how powerful letter writing is. No one does it anymore. What about you? I said. Frazzles, he said. Yeah, Uncle Claude goes mad for those, apparently. I know, he's the one who got me into them. I kind of forget the two of you grew up together. I tend to forget that too, said my dad. I rarely think about the old days. I'm very much a, a forward-looking person. What's the best jam? I said. Gooseberry, said my dad without having to think about it. Oh, good call. I'd have said blackberry, but you got me swayed with that one. Best fizzy drink, said my dad. This beer's pretty good. Soft one, I am brew. Nice one. I drink Diet Coke more than anything, even though I know it's blander than tap water and 100% evil. I suspect I have a caffeine addiction that I'm in denial about. Did you know Iron Brew is the only example of a soft drink that outsells Coca-Cola in its home country? Scotland is the only nation in the world that's been able to manufacture a drink that does better than Coke. Bravo to the Scots, said my dad. So how do you vote? I said. I don't, he said. It would blow my cover. I've never voted, to be honest. Can't be bothered. Same here, I said. Has Brexit happened yet? I don't even know what that is, I said. Seriously, I've heard people talk about it, but... Well, basically. No, don't tell me, I said. I don't want to know. I get the impression it's all just a big distraction to draw people's attention away from all the animals that are becoming extinct anyway. You see, you are quite political in your own way, said my dad. Call it that if you want, I said. I just think people should be nice to each other and look after the planet, but there's nothing I can do to change other people's behaviour. Amen, said my dad. Are you religious? Nah. Yeah, me neither. Do you follow a football team? My God, no. That's the biggest scam of the lot. It seems you and I have an awful lot in common, I said. I should hope so too, he said. We got the same genes. We've even got the same name. Yeah, I said. I should have figured it out sooner, really. The fact that I'm called Frank Burton Jr. It should have been obvious. You were the one who wanted kids, and my mum was the one who got talked into it. Yes, said my dad. That's all true. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. This is tomorrow's conversation. Okay, I said. What's the best board game? Snakes and Ladders.
said my dad. Luck of the dice. No skill. Everyone's at the same disadvantage. Nice one, I said. I was going to go for the total opposite and say chess, but I'll go with your choice again. You see, said my dad, we're peas in a pod. Chapter 34 We had a couple more drinks than called it a night. I fell asleep instantly on my dad's double bed while he took the single at the other end of the room. I woke the next morning to the smell of coffee and croissants. All right, said my dad. He was fully dressed. I ordered breakfast to the room. Wasn't sure what you wanted, so I got a few bits and pieces, all vegan friendly. Thanks, Dad, I said. I think this may have been the first time I'd called him that since we met. I remember carefully avoiding names the previous night. I sat up took a sip of coffee and helped myself to a couple of pastries. This all feels like a dream, I said. I know what you mean. But also, it feels like a perfectly natural thing to be doing, just chilling out, having breakfast with my dad. My dad munched on a slice of toast. I don't usually do these hotel breakfasts, he said. I've been living in hotels for 15 years. What, the whole time? Yeah, I like it. It's like a holiday. How can you afford it? The question is, said my dad, how can people afford to live in houses? I usually go much cheaper than this place. 50 quid a night, that sort of price bracket. That's something like 1500 per month altogether. Not cheap, but there's plenty of people paying the equivalent in rent plus bills, plus council tax, plus a whole bunch of stuff to go in the house, you know, possessions and that. Take all that into account. I got a pretty good deal doing what I do. And what do you do, I said, for a living? My dad grinned. You're really asking me that? You figured it out already. It's all in your book. So you're gambling, that's it. All this cash you're splashing around. All that money for the podcast, that's your winnings. My sole source of income, he said. It was all in cash to start off with, year after year. I never touched a bank card. Then I started making proper money. Too much to safely keep hidden in a suitcase somewhere. I started using safety deposit boxes, that sort of thing. It felt like I was doing something criminal, even though it was all legit. Then last year, I met a guy who sorted me out his new identity. I got a passport and everything. That was illegal, I'm afraid to say, but I couldn't see any other way around it. And it's made paying for things so much more convenient. Like that 20k I gave you. I wouldn't have fancied dropping that off to your camper van in cash while maintaining my secret identity. Talk about a logistical nightmare. What have you been betting on? I said. Is it something to do with that diagram on Olaf's phone? He laughed, spraying breadcrumbs over his shirt. (laughs) Absolutely not. That was a total amateur back then. I'll tell you all about it, but I should probably start at the very beginning. 
would you mind if we do things that way? If I tell you the story from start to finish and then we can make sure we don't leave anything out. That sounds great, I said. Where are you going to start? Well, I know what's important to you, said my dad. You want a proper explanation about how me and your mum got together. So let's start there. Actually, let's go there. We're less than an hour away. Less than an hour later, we were standing in a busy shopping street in Camberley. Here, said my dad, right here. We were right next to a lamppost a few feet from a bus stop. That bus stop wasn't there before. This must be a new route. That was a bench there before. Your mum and I sat on it. We talked. But this, this right here, this is the exact spot where we met. So how did you meet? It was one of those moments where you find yourself making eye contact with a total stranger. And for a moment you think, do I know this person? They look a bit familiar. Shall I say something? Or shall I look away, go about my business? And 99.9% .9 of the time you choose the latter option. When I saw your mum, I couldn't help myself. I said, hi. And I could tell she was thinking the same about me. She was wondering where she knew me from. We were both walking alone. As it turns out, neither of us had anything particularly important to do that day. If we had, no doubt we'd have carried on walking and that would be that. I'd never have married a woman and you'd have never been born. But that's what happened. We stopped and said hello because we thought perhaps... We knew each other. We didn't, but we both put the effort into thinking about it. Where do I know you from? I said. For some reason, she took this to mean we'd been involved in some way. She laughed and said, I'm not that kind of girl. I said, you're barking up the wrong tree there. And I'm afraid to say I proceeded to make some horrible, misjudged innuendo about taking things the wrong way which was supposed to translate as actually I'm gay. In any case, although she didn't laugh, she understood what I was saying. I hadn't put her off too much with the dodgy jokes. She asked me what my name was. I said, I'm Frank Burton. She said, I'm Elizabeth Burton. We laughed. Then we went to sit over there. He pointed at the bus stop. We stepped across to the bus stop and took a seat. This is exactly where we sat, he said. We needed to sit down at this point because both of us were interested to know if we were somehow related. We'd recognise each other after all. Well, it turns out there was no family connection whatsoever. I told her what I knew of my own family history. She told me hers. We sat there. We sat right here for ages, naming second and third cousins but couldn't find any link between the two of us we were just two people who happened to have the same name but yes frank i know what you're going to say i've read your book your mum described me and her as being two people who happened to have the same name you see what she was getting at now it's absolutely true 
But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let me tell you what happened next. It wasn't all that comfortable on the bench. It was January. It was freezing outside. So we went to that cafe right across the road. As it happens, although it's under new management and they changed everything around, it's basically the same setup as a table where your mum and me sat. Let's go and see if it's free. The cafe was half full. The table my dad had in mind was occupied by a young couple. He approached them and said, Hi guys, sorry to interrupt, but I'm telling a story to my son here and it kind of involves this table. I was hoping we could sit here if you wouldn't mind moving. The couple were happy to oblige. Clearly my dad's request had intrigued them, so they moved to the next table along so they could listen in. I ordered some coffee and brought it over. So this is where you sat, I said. Pretty much exactly in this position. Different tables and chairs, but right here, across from the window, I was here, your mum was in your seat. I started telling her all about myself, some bits about my upbringing, coming out of the closet, how that affected my relationship with my parents, all that sort of personal stuff that I wouldn't normally have spoken to a stranger about. I told her about me and Nigel. We were living together. We loved each other, but we argued a lot. Sometimes he tried to control me, and sometimes I tried to control him. We made each other laugh, and we made each other feel safe and secure. We wanted to have kids one day. I was really into that idea. Your mum said she never wanted kids as long as she lived. She didn't like the idea of starting a family because she hated her family. She stopped talking to them. She'd been living on her own for a couple of years. Although she was still local to various family members, they hadn't crossed paths in all of that time. She was waiting for an opportunity to get out of Camberley, saving up some money to relocate, maybe to the West Country, she said. She didn't tell me any of her details as to why she hated her family. To this day, I don't know who any of them are or if they're still alive. She was running away from something, that's all I knew. I realised that was something I wanted to do too, or I would have done under different circumstances. I was in a committed relationship with a decent job selling cars. I just liked the idea of going off on an adventure disappearing and starting again. That's what you did though, isn't it? I said. We'll get to that, he said. We talked about a whole bunch of other stuff. I can't remember it all now. But by the end of the afternoon, it felt like we'd known each other for years. We arranged to meet each other again in the same place the following week. So that's what we did. Just to check, said the woman at the next table, you're father and son, right? You don't see the resemblance, said my dad. Of course. Yes, we're father and son. So you met here again, I said. Right here, he said, at this same table, only I was sitting where you're sitting. Shall we swap places? Sure. We swap places. So the subject of children came up again. I told her I couldn't stop thinking about having a child for me and Nigel to raise. We'd both be brilliant parents, I reckoned. 
again she told me she'd never do something like that. I said, what if you fell in love with someone who wanted kids, settled down with a man, and he told you he wanted a child? She said, I have no intention of settling down with a man, and even if I did, there's no way he'd be calling the shots. I said, you're not interested in men? I was expecting her to tell me she was gay too, but instead she told me she just wasn't interested in anyone, full stop. Didn't have those kind of desires. This made absolutely no sense to me at the time. Remember, this was 1979. Most people could hardly get their heads around gay and straight. I could only imagine what that was like, I said. So, you're gay, said the young woman at the next table. I am indeed, said my dad. Cool. You see, said my dad, it's cool now. He wasn't back then. That's the way it goes. Where were we? You were talking to my mum about her being celibate. You're not surprised by that, he said. Makes a lot of sense, I said. So, anyway, said my dad, I just came out with it. I said, what if I asked you to be my surrogate? She burst out laughing. She said, are you serious? I said, yeah. We're looking for someone right now. We'll pay good money too. We both earn a decent wage. He's an engineer. She said, I've honestly never considered anything like that before. And I knew from that moment she was going to say yes. How did you know? I said. Because she didn't say no, he said. She said, I've honestly never considered anything like that before. That meant she was considering it now. And all I needed to do was sell it to her. I said, I think it will be the perfect match. I feel like you and I have got this connection. I can't say exactly what it is, but we both felt it the moment we laid eyes on each other out there in the street last week. And the fact that we've got the same name, that's just the icing on the cake. I wasn't lying to her. This was all true. This was exactly how I felt. She was trying her best not to smile. I could tell she agreed with me. I knew she felt that connection, whatever it was. I added, we can make each other laugh. We make each other feel safe and secure. You make me feel the exact same way Nigel makes me feel. I never thought I'd say that to a woman, but there you go. And that was it. She smiled and she said, yes, Frank, I'll do it. Just like that, I said. Just like that, he said. I'd imagine it sounds pretty weird to anyone who wasn't there. But like I say, I wasn't making that stuff up about our connection. There was this really strong something or other between us. Anyway, it did seem like it was all happening too quickly. I told her to think about it. And we'd meet back here the following week. She could tell me her decision then. She agreed. And so we met here the following week. Same table again, I said. Almost, said my dad, peering cheerfully at the couple beside us. You want to swap tables, said the young woman. If you wouldn't mind, said my dad. I hope you don't mind us listening to this, said the young man as we switched places. Not at all, said my dad. Good, because this is getting interesting. Just try not to interrupt too much. We'll take questions at the end and trust me, you are going to have some questions. I'm Alan, by the way, said the man. This is Jill. 
Pleased to meet you, Alan Jill. Let's get back to it. I said, you met at this table the following week. Yes, said my dad. And straight away she told me her decision. She was going to do it. She'd use the money to move down to Cornwall and start a new life for herself. It all just seemed to make total sense. I wanted a baby and she wanted to move away. I said, in that case, there's someone you should meet. Nigel was waiting in the car outside. I waved at him through the window. He sat right there beside me. He was a charming man and Elizabeth warmed to him straight away. She couldn't stop looking at the two of us and smiling as though she were our own mother, proud of her two boys. That's the only way I can describe the look on her face that day. It was maternal. It seemed like meeting Nigel had sealed what had already been a solid deal. What was Nigel like? I said. What? said my dad. I'm just interested. What sort of person was he? Well, we were young, said my dad. We were young guys in our 20s. We were both into music, but totally different stuff. I was into punk and reggae and a bit of prog stuff. He liked disco and ABBA and the Grease soundtrack. He was more of an intellectual than me. He read a lot of books and all he ever wanted to watch on the TV was news and documentaries. I didn't care about any of that. I wasn't interested in who the Prime Minister was. I spent ages not even knowing who Margaret Thatcher was. But these weren't the things we argued about. We never argued about politics or music. We argued about everything else. Where to go on holiday. What colour to paint the living room. What we were going to name the baby. What we were going to eat for dinner. Anything like that was a subject for debate. But neither of us knew how to debate. All we knew was how to argue. And we did that very badly indeed. But of course, your mum never saw that side to us. She saw two people who were in love with each other and wanted to start a family, and it melted her heart. That's sweet, said Jill. So, from there we set the plan into motion. I won't go into the ins and outs of the insemination process. That all went as smoothly as possible. Your mum confirmed she was pregnant, and we parted all night. Me and Nigel did anyway. I talked to your mum on the phone every day, and I would meet her in this cafe once a week from that point on. A few months went by. One day, your mum arrived at the cafe and waited. I didn't turn up. She was about to give up and go and find a payphone when I sat down opposite her. I was wearing sunglasses. It was cloudy outside. She asked me what was wrong. I told her, me and Nigel got into a fight. I took the sunglasses off and showed her my black eye. She asked what the fight was about. It was a stupid thing to fight over, as usual. He wanted to have his car spray painted some horrible shade of green. I said I didn't think it would be a good idea. For one thing, it would lower the resale value of the car. And for another, it would look disgusting. He said it was his car, his decision. I've told him to do what he wanted, and he accused me of being passive-aggressive or something. I had no idea what that meant. When I asked him what it meant, he took that to mean I thought he was patronising me. Whatever I said from that point, he took it the wrong way until we started yelling at each other, pushing, shoving, a couple of punches, and it was all over. He said he was moving out and never wanted to see me again. I said, what about the baby? He said, well, that's your responsibility now. It's got nothing to do with me. Maybe it would have been different if you'd used my sperm, but that's the way it goes. My God, I said quietly. 
your mum ran off to the toilets and threw up, said my dad. Then she came back and sat down. I could see she'd had herself a little cry while she'd been in there. She said, what are you going to do now? I said, what would you like to do? She said, we can't get rid of it now, I'm too far along. We'll just have to put it up for adoption. I said, you don't think I can't bring this baby up on my own? She said, I don't think you would want to. It's hard work raising a child on your own. You'd be utterly miserable. I said, unless. She knew what I was going to say. She shook her head. Just hold on a minute, I said. Wait here. I promise I'll be back really soon. I disappeared, returning ten minutes later with a pair of gold rings I bought from a market stall. We don't need a certificate, I said. We've got the same name already. Put this on and I'll take you away. We'll move down to Cornwall together. We'll raise this child as our own. I mean, it is our own. It's mine and yours. It's ours to raise. And I know you don't want kids and this isn't what you signed up for. But just think about it. Think about what it might be like. She said it wouldn't be a marriage. I said not legally. But people will see these two rings and they'll see that we're both called Burton and we'll pass for a married couple. She shook her head sadly. That's what I'll have to look forward to. A sham marriage. A child I never wanted. I said how about a beautiful friendship with a man you have a strong indefinable connection with and a child who's a mixture of the two of us who instead of ruining your life could make your life worthwhile. And for a moment it seemed like the spell had been broken. I'd been overly persuasive and that's never a good idea. She said, you're just a car salesman aren't you? You're selling me this child like it's a Ford Mondeo. I couldn't help myself, I thought that was really funny things to say. I laughed my head off and she laughed too. Can you imagine that line in your mum's voice? He imitated my mum's long bowels. Ford Mondeo. <laughs> I laughed along. Yes, I said. I can't imagine that. So, I took hold of her hands and I kissed her on the lips and I slipped the ring onto her finger. I'd guessed the size, but it fitted perfectly. She said, it's on the wrong hand. It's supposed to be on the left. I switched it around and stuck mine on too, and I said, Congratulations, Mrs. Burton. Congratulations. Chapter 35 You didn't move to Cornwall, I said. Evidently not, he said. I kind of chickened out. Claude offered me a job in Manchester. It turned out your mum wasn't all that fussed about where we ran away to. The North seemed just as attractive as the West. All she wanted to do was get away from her hometown. I knew what that was like, but it made much more sense for me to go where my brother was, where at least I'd have a bit of family connection, so that's it. That's the story of how your mum and I got together. He smiled at Alan and Jill. Yes, we have a lot of questions, said Alan. I've made a few mental notes as we went along. Well, now's your chance, far away. Alan and Jill took it in turns to ask their questions. It was all about stuff I already knew about, so I wandered off and ordered a couple of bowls of soup for me and my dad. We'd made it all the way through to midday without any awkwardness or tension. 
it occurred to me my dad was a very different person to the one I remember. The dad from my childhood had so much anger and frustration inside him, which he seemed to have no idea what to do with. He was never aggressive. I rarely heard him shout, even when him and my mum were arguing. But he always seemed tense and restless. He had an inability to sit still. Perhaps this was something to do with the fact that, aside from a few occasions, I only ever saw him when he was in the house. And it seems obvious now that whenever he was in the house, he was desperate to get away. I didn't get to see many of his interactions with people in the outside world. He'd always struck me as being the sort of person who found it difficult to relate to strangers. And maybe that's what he used to be like. But seeing him with Alan and Jill was like watching a professional showman working his magic. He had proper charisma and the ability to empathise. When I got back to the table, my dad was telling Alan and Jill about my podcast. Trust me, it'll be right up your street, he was saying. Everyone will be talking about it soon enough. I hope not, I said, which our audience assumed was a joke. Well, we'd really love to stay and chat some more, said Jill, but we've really got to be off. It's been wonderful to meet you both. Thanks. I was sure to check out your blog, said Alan. Podcast, I mumbled. Bye. The soups arrived. Did you have any questions yourself? said my dad. I'm glad they've gone, I said. They're okay, he said. People are interested in this sort of stuff. Anyway, I said, I probably will have some questions in a bit. I'm just joining the dots in my head. We ate our soup and walked back down the street to the car park and drove back to my dad's hotel. Nice set of wheels, he said. Do you drive? I said. He shook his head. It's one of those things I had to stop doing to avoid detection. I've been taking public transport, which works pretty well for me. It's the best way to travel in London. I guess now I've got this new identity, I could get a different driving licence. But I'd have to take my test again, and I can't be bothered with that. It's been so long I've forgotten how to do it. So have you been in London this whole time? I've been all over the place, he said. I must have stayed in every city in the UK. Which was your favourite? Oh, that's a hell of a question, he said. I'd probably have to say Birmingham or Glasgow. They're the places I seem to have met the most interesting people. Overall, it often feels like everywhere's kind of the same, apart from superficial stuff like accents. I like a good cathedral as well. Warwick, Canterbury, Arundel, all places like that. I'm not religious. But I got a thing about those old buildings, just going in there and wandering around. You seem a lot happier, I said. Happier than what? Happier than you were when I was a kid, I said. Oh God, yes, he agreed. I'm a million times happier. I realise I don't really have a conventional lifestyle, Frank. But I dreamed about this for a very long time and eventually it became a reality. And it's everything I wanted it to be. That's good, I said. I know I failed you, he said casually. I wanted to be a parent, but I messed it all up. And instead of trying to fix things or become a better father, I basically resigned myself to being a failed parent and focused instead on being successful at something else. Not that that's any justification for the way I've lived my life. Everything I've ever done has been for entirely selfish reasons. I might as well be honest about that. I just don't have the ability to act any other way. 
Sometimes I'll donate money to charity or take a homeless guy to a restaurant and get him a free course meal. And sometimes I like to entertain the idea that these are unselfish acts, but they're not. They're designed to make me feel better about myself. And somehow I see my occasional acts of altruism as somehow compensating for the way I treated you and your mum. Not bothering to be a proper husband or proper dad and then disappearing into the night. I had to keep my eyes on the road so I couldn't see his facial expression. He talked last night about crying tears of remorse, but there didn't seem any sign of that now. It almost sounded like he was boasting about it. I won't disagree with you, I said after a while. I agree about you being selfish, that's the way it seems to me. And maybe that's what I'm like too. I've designed my whole life so it's all about me. I've somehow managed to make a living from doing what I want to do and... I don't have time to let other people in. The difference between you and me is I never had a wife and child. I've chosen not to have those responsibilities. You're lucky, he said. When I was a kid in the 60s, we had responsibility drilled into us constantly. Grow up, get a job, get married and have kids. So that's what people did. Even people like me. God knows how many of us there were. Blokes my age, blokes like Ben living their whole life as a square peg in a round hole, all because of this constant mantra, grow up, get a job, get married and have kids. I suppose I was lucky too, meeting your mum. At least we were honest with each other and let each other do our own thing. We thought somehow we could cheat the system. We could present this image to the world, the image everyone wanted to see, a man, his wife and his child. Is that why you never told me, I said, so I could have like a normal upbringing? Possibly, said my dad, although it probably wasn't as noble as that, I just wanted an easy life. The whole thing had gotten too much for me. After Nigel left, I swore to myself I'd never get myself in a situation like that again. I still had feelings and desires and all that, but I told myself I wouldn't fall in love again. And I stuck to that promise. I had a handful of lovers. Ben was by far the longest, I suppose. He was definitely the most intense. But all the while... I wasn't going to let my feelings for Ben run away with me. I hope you don't mind me talking about this. Of course not, I said. This is the kind of thing me and Noddy were fishing around four years back. Good. I'm happy to talk about it. What about now, I said. Do you have people in your life? What kind of people? Friends? Boyfriends? Neither, really. I like meeting new people, getting to know them for a bit, and then saying goodbye, never seeing them again. Don't take this the wrong way, but that's exactly what I should have done with your mum. The first two times we met were absolutely perfect. It was a perfect friendship. There was nothing sexual there whatsoever from either person's point of view. We had a connection and we had some good laughs, great conversation. It should have ended there. Hang on, I said. I'm listening to the sat-nav. I took the exit off the M25. We were five minutes away from the hotel. Looks like this is the complicated bit, I said. I'll just focus on the road for a bit. Okay, said my dad. We ordered a couple of coffees from the hotel bar and took them up to the room. I'd forgotten how high up we were. From the window we could see a bunch of landmarks, St Paul's Cathedral, Canary Wharf, the Gherkin. I ignored them. This may be a tough question, I said, but this connection you had with my mum, what happened to it? Yeah, said my dad. That is a tough one, all right. I'm pretty sure your mum was right. In your book, she said our relationship effectively ended when we stopped laughing at each other's jokes. According to her, the pivotal moment was the cream egg joke, 
which I seem to be the only person who doesn't remember. I vaguely recall saying something about a bag of Maltesers. Maybe that's what it was, I said. My mum remembered being a marathon. I remember cream egg. It's entirely possible it could have been Maltesers. But I don't remember what I actually said. I do. I know, he said. We're getting sidetracked here. The point is, your mum and me had a real strong connection, like the one you describe yourself, haven't we, Heidi? It always made me jolt slightly when someone said her name out of the blue. What? I said. On your podcast, you talked about meeting Heidi for the first time. I can't remember the exact words you used, but you said you wanted to be close to her, as close to her as possible. That's about right. That's how me and your mum felt about each other. I don't know where that came from, and even though the evidence points to me being a total nightmare of a husband, I don't fully understand where it went, but that's what happened. Once it was gone, it was gone. And I might as well have left as soon as it did. Instead, we stay together year after year, growing further and further apart, exchanging as few words as possible, and spending as little time in each other's company as we possibly could. But again, maybe that's because we were always told to do that. Grow up, get a job, get married and have kids. And don't get divorced. The irony is, we weren't even married in the first place. We were so far into this lie, this game of happy families, neither of us were willing to admit that perhaps we should have just dropped the act and gone our separate ways. I nodded, taking it all in. Let's change the subject, he said. I'll ask you a question now. What did you think of the flat? I mean, when you and Noddy went there and found my old tapes. It's a tough thing to recall, I said, considering that's where Noddy died, but I do remember it clearly. I remember being relieved there was nothing sinister in there. Sinister? Like what? I don't know, it was such a closely guarded secret, I was almost expecting a child's coffin or something. My dad seemed to think that was very funny. And then I found your record collection, and I realised I had no idea you were cool. My dad laughed again. <laughs> I didn't really figure myself was cool. All my friends were listening to Bon Jovi and Simply Red and Brian Adams. Within my own peer group, that's what the cool stuff was. I liked the fact that I was different to them. I'd sneak off to specialist record shops in town and buy more vinyls for my box. Judging by those tapes I made, you could be forgiven for thinking I was yearning for a career in broadcasting or something. It was actually the complete opposite. I wanted to be the only person who ever heard those recordings. Given the circumstances, it's great that you got to hear them. But apart from that, I like keeping it all a secret. I used to go to gigs a lot on my own. I liked the fact that absolutely no one knew where I was and no one would have guessed. Your mum was happier without me in the house. And aside from not seeing you very much, which is my one big regret, it suited me fine. Like all this business with Ben... I didn't want to run off with him. I enjoyed all the sneaking around, booking into hotels just for the afternoon, planning it all out so we wouldn't get caught. It was like being a spy. And how was being in the closet again? I said. My dad shrugged. I'm probably supposed to say it was horrible, but I don't really think it was. As I say, I liked keeping secrets. I liked having my own private world. And sex became part of that. In the end, I suppose pretty much everyone knew about it. Everyone at work did, all my betting shop friends and the guys from the flat. Technically it was still a secret, but it was one of those secrets that everyone was in on. Did anyone give you a hard time? I said. Here and there. I had Claude protecting me, more than he needed to sometimes. 
he sacked someone for making a faggot joke once and it made the national papers. He was quoted as saying he's an equal opportunities employer and that was interpreted in all sorts of ways depending on which newspaper you read. On the whole, it turned out to be a very good PR move for him. Wow, I said, I didn't know that. It was years ago, in the early 90s. I'm surprised Claude's never brought that up. He did it because of me, said my dad. He didn't talk about it because he was keeping my secret. It all seems a bit unnecessary now, all this secrecy business. I'll probably do things very differently, given another chance. But there's no point thinking like that. As I say, Frank, I have only one regret, and that's not being around while you were growing up, then not being available afterwards. I am sorry about that. Apology accepted. Thanks. I glanced at him, considering going in for a hug, but stopped myself. Tell me about these gigs, I said. Who do you go and see? My God, he smiled. Where do I start? And off we swept on an epic discussion about music. It was extraordinary how close my tastes were to my dad's. I told him about new bands and artists I'd discovered in the last few years who I hadn't played on the podcast yet. I made some notes based on his recommendations. It turned out we both went to Glastonbury in 2000. I'd gone with some student friends and my dad went on his own, having told my mummy had a work thing. We saw quite a few of the same bands, including David Bowie, which neither of us would ever forget. We could have been standing a few feet away from each other. Apparently my dad had taken a scoop of the muddy soil and grass from the spot where he'd stood and took it home in a glass jar. My mum will have thrown it out by now, of course. One thing I've wondered about, I said, is how you've gone from collecting all of this random stuff and piling it up in your house to living in hotels with no possessions aside from what fits in your case. As I was saying, I don't think I was meant to live in a house. For one thing, I'm hopeless at DIY, can't cook, can't even be trusted to wash up properly. Seriously, your mum effectively banned me from helping out in the kitchen because I kept stacking up dirty dishes in the cupboards trying to pass them off as clean. Then there's the hoarding. I can't really explain why I did that, but it turns out as a simple solution. Don't live in a house. But what was all that stuff, I said. Does every piece have a story behind it, like the mud in the jar? Kind of, said my dad. Let's go for a walk. I'll show you what I do most days. It will give you an insight into how I've spent my time. Also, you might enjoy it. Chapter 36 We headed down to the south bank and walked beside the river. Every now and then, my dad would stop to pick up an object from the ground. The first thing he found was a flower petal. It was yellow with black spots. For a moment, I mistook it for a butterfly's wing. Look at that, he said, holding it up to the light. Do you know what kind of flower that's from? Don't know, I said. Me neither. Any sign of the rest of the flower anywhere? We looked around, but no sign of it. We'll add this, he said, and stuck it in his pocket. A little further on was a burst helium balloon, caught beneath a scattering of stones. My dad unfolded it, revealing the Disney character printed on the front. This isn't for us, 
he said, and put it back carefully where he'd found it. Further on we found a single red glove, which had evidently been dropped by a passing child. We'll add that, he said, and stuck it in his pocket. We carried on like this for an hour or so. We stopped off at a cafe and spread the objects we'd collected out on the table in front of us. Among the loot was a luminous orange golf ball, a handwritten shopping list, a broken clothes peg and a dead wasp. What do we do now? I said. What I would usually do, said my dad, is examine each of these objects and one by one I'll imagine what its story might be. Where did this clothes peg begin its life? Who did it belong to? And where's the other half? What about the flower? How far did this petal fly in the wind before settling on the pavement beside the Thames? You get the idea. So it's like a writing exercise, I said. I'm not a writer, he said. I don't record any of this stuff. I just imagine it, and then, when I'm done, I let the idea drift away like a dream. And you do this every day? Most days, I'd say. I'll get a lot out of it. I'm not creative in the same way that you are, Frank. You have the ability to write books, and I admire that. Unfortunately, my creative energy doesn't have a great deal of structure to it. But that side of me is always there, demanding my attention. So this is my way of dealing with it. How long have you been doing this for? I said. At least 30 years. So you've been doing it since I was a child? You see, this is my explanation for why the house was so full. Instead of writing all these ideas down, I just kept all the objects, every single one. Didn't Mum get annoyed? Probably. It never seemed to bother her. I just think she stopped caring, he said. She's got rid of it all now. Good. At the time, I thought I was building up a whole library, a body of work to rival those of the great artists. But obviously, I wasn't doing that. I was stockpiling junk. What I do now is much better. Why, what do you do now? I gather together the day's discoveries. I put them in a box or a little paper bag and I'll leave them somewhere for someone else to find. Sometimes I'll leave them in my hotel room when I'm checking out. Today, I think we can abandon them right here on this table. What about Nimble Land, I said. You still do that too? Yes, he said, but I can't really talk about it. Nimble Land is my own private world. I've revealed a few too many secrets today. No problem. One more secret, though he said, in answer to your first question from this morning. How much do you know about reality TV? I don't watch TV, I said. But you understand the concept, right? And you understand it's something people bet on. Yeah. Well, 15 years ago, I figured out how it works. It's the same pattern every time. Whatever the show happens to be, Love Island, X Factor, I'm a Celebrity whatever it is, don't put any money down in the early rounds. Wait until the final. And in the final week, whoever's the favourite is absolutely guaranteed to win. Don't ask me why. Maybe it's rigged or maybe public opinion is easy to predict in these sort of circumstances. Whatever the reasons, all you need to do is bet a ton of money on the favourite. That 20 grand I gave you, Britain's Got Talent. Seriously? Yep. 
I told you, it's how I make my living. It's the reason I've spent the last 15 years doing whatever the hell I wanted. One day, it'll all come to an end. Either these TV contests will go out of fashion or the bookies will stop bothering with them. And when that happens, I'll find something else to do. Maybe it's starting to happen already. I lost a ton of money a few months ago on the Love Island final. I won't be doing that again. So maybe one day, all these other shows will go the same way. Until then, I'll just keep on enjoying myself. I don't know what to say, I said. That's hilarious. It is, isn't it? So how do you actually... Oh, I've said enough, said my dad. Really, I have. I'll go and grab us another drink. But what I'd like you to do, if you'll indulge me for a moment, is take a look at all the objects on this table and close your eyes and imagine what their stories might be, each and every item, one by one. Take all the time you need. I think you will be really good at this. I smiled and stared at the table. Same again, he said. Yeah, I said. Thanks, Dad. I closed my eyes. I started with the wasp, the story of its life from birth right through to its death on a paving slab on the south bank. Then I did the flower petal. He was right. I was really good at this. I was so caught up with what I was doing, I lost track of where I was. Can I help you, sir? said a voice beside me. I opened my eyes. Sorry, I said. There was a waiter clearing the neighbouring table. Can I get you another drink? he said. It's okay, I said. My dad went up to order me one. That man you were with, he said. Yes. He left about ten minutes ago. Left? He paid for your drinks first. He was going to order me another one. Looks like he didn't, sir. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Is everything okay? Ah, It's a long story. Can I get you another drink? No, I think I'd better go after him. I have a feeling I'm never going to see him again, but there's nothing much you can do about that. I'm sorry, sir. I got up and headed for the door. Excuse me, the waiter called after me. Yeah? These things you left on the table, are they? Do you have a paper bag? I said. I'll have them to go. By the time I arrived at my dad's hotel, he'd already checked out. I left the paper bag with one of the porters and asked if they could add it to their lost property. My dad hadn't given me a phone number or any indication of where he was heading to next. All I had was an email address for Nathaniel Anniversary Pylon. I pulled my phone out and sent him a quick message. Nice exit, Dad. No hard feelings. Actually, I can see the funny side of it all. It was good to see you. Perhaps we'll meet again one of these days. If not, I wish you the very best of luck. Keep on winning. A few seconds after I pressed send, I received a notification to say the message had failed. He'd obviously discontinued that address, so that was that. I got back into my camper van and drove to Land's End. As expected, I didn't hear from my dad again. He mentioned that he had a passport now, so maybe this time he really had left the country. One thing was for sure, I would not be investigating this time. I clearly wasn't wearing my detective hat while my dad was around.
while he'd mentioned more than once that he got himself a new identity, it hadn't even occurred to me to ask what his new name was. Noddy would have punched me. But I was long past asking myself the question, what would Noddy do? I was doing what I wanted to do now. And maybe it wasn't pure coincidence that my dad was doing the same. Chapter 37 Every now and again, I can't help imagining what might have happened if my dad and Nigel had stayed together. Let's say they've patched up their differences, they learnt how to talk to each other properly and respect each other's personal space. All those things you're expected to figure out for yourself when you grow up. Me and my two dads had the most brilliant life together. One of my dads was an engineer and he knew all about books and football and jigsaws. My other dad had the same name as me and he sold cars for a living and sometimes we'd go for rides in the best cars ever made because he knew all the right people. My two dads loved each other so much. Sometimes they'd argue but then they'd remind themselves they had the greatest little guy in the world and that made everything okay. Sometimes kids at school would call me names because I didn't have a mum. But we had this really great head teacher called Mrs Forsyth who was able to explain it all really well, which stopped me from getting bullied. Mrs Forsyth made everyone believe that because I had two dads, I'd be twice as good at football when I grew up. One day, some kid in the playground said I couldn't be twice as good at football because both my dads were queer. I challenged him to penalties one-on-one. -on -one. I thrashed him 5-0. He never said anything like that again. When I was a teenager, my two dads asked me if I'd like to meet my birth mother one day. I said, sure, why not? So we used one of my dad's contacts to hire a Rolls Royce for the weekend and we drove down to Cornwall to meet Elizabeth. She ran a hotel and the three of us stayed in one of her rooms together. She was really nice and had so many dogs I couldn't even count them. Chapter 38 Three months went by with no contact from anyone. I celebrated my 40th birthday alone on the Isle of Wight. Christmas and New Year came and went. I kept myself busy with the podcast and travelling and writing the rest of the book. You know, this book, the one you're listening to. I didn't have a title for it yet. Also, I didn't have an ending because the event that I was anticipating being the end of the book hadn't taken place yet. As luck would have it, just as I was polishing off the chapter about my dad disappearing for a second time, you know, the chapter before last, I received a phone call from Uncle Claude. I guessed correctly what the call was about. My dad had been officially declared dead. The memorial service was booked for a couple of weeks' time. I confirmed I'd be there on the understanding that my mum definitely wouldn't. Claude assured me Elizabeth had no interest in attending. Two weeks passed without me giving the memorial service much thought. It wasn't a big thing as far as I was concerned. I was only really going there to support Uncle Claude. It was his thing, his way of saying goodbye to my dad. I'd already done that myself, both internally and in the flesh. On the drive up to Manchester, it occurred to me that I ought to be treating this like much more of a momentous event. This was, after all, supposed to be the final chapter of the book. 
So if the memorial ended up being the anti-climax I was expecting it to be, the book wouldn't have much of an ending. So I'd better brace myself for some kind of emotional release, some final realization which would tie this whole thing up in a neat little bow. But surely I'd already done that through meeting my dad again. I was done with emotional release. I'd had quite enough of that. I arrived in the middle of the night and parked up outside the chapel. The service wasn't starting until 11am. Claude arrived at 10 and knocked on my window. I was just climbing into the suit I'd hired. Hang on, I said. I finished dressing and climbed out of the van. Claude gave me a big hug and said, I'm glad you came, Frank. I wouldn't miss it for the world, I said brightly. Are we expecting much turnout? No family apart from you and me, said Claude. A few old friends, associates, that sort of thing. I'll ask you not to mention anything about... I sniggered. The, the flat? Yes, he said seriously. You still have your little group. I'm not allowed to talk about it, as you know. It's fine, I said. It definitely won't come up in conversation. Come inside. Help me set things up, said Claude. I've got something to show you. I followed him inside the little candlelit building. I guess they try and make these places welcoming to non-believers, but there were still portraits of the saints and little crucifixes dotted about. It occurred to me that my dad had probably never set foot in a church in his life. Then I remembered what he said about cathedral cities. I realised Claude was talking to me. Pardon? I said. Over here. He led me through to the main room where the service was taking place. Was I supposed to genuflect or something? Here it is, he said. He pointed to the coffin. What's this for? I said. That's what I'm telling you, Frank. This has become a bit more than a memorial service. It's a funeral. Exactly. There's no body. I know that. What are we going to do? Cremate this thing? Of course not. We're burying it. It's empty. I put a photograph in there. That's all I could think of. Can I take a look? Yes, he said. Be careful. That is heavier than it looks. Claude helped me creak the thing open. It's from work, he said. It's the most recent one I had of him. How old is he here? About 40, I guess. He looks exactly like me. Indeed he does. Are you sure this is a good idea, I said. What's wrong with just remembering him? It just felt right to do things this way, said Claude. More final. Well, you don't get much more final than this, I suppose. Claude was pacing up and down the aisle. Christ, I'm nervous, he said. Are you making a speech, I said. Yes, but it's not the speech that's bothering me. I keep thinking your dad's going to prove us all wrong. Turn up at his own funeral like Reggie Perrin. Remember that? I read the book a few years ago, I said. Yeah, it's very funny. It was, wasn't it? Can I get you a drink, I said. Stiff whiskey might help. I don't have any of that. I do. Uncle Claude pulled a silver hip flask from his pocket. Whoa, look at that, I said. What? He said, taking a sip. I laughed. <laughs> a hip flask. This has to be the most retro thing in the entire room. Oh, you youngsters with your retro, he said. I'm hip, and this is a hip flask. We laughed. He took another sip. 
Okay, don't drink too much of that. You'll be slurring your way through your speech. A man popped his head round the doorway and cleared his throat. Uh, Mr Burton, some of the guests are arriving now. We'll be there in a second, said Claude. Frank, will you help me meet and greet? Sure. We stood in the entrance shaking hands. The first two couples were friends of Claude's, no one I recognised. Maybe they didn't even know my dad, and like me were just there out of some kind of duty. Then Omar arrived, looking very much the same as he had a decade ago. He may well have been wearing the exact same suit. His wife was by his side. He remembered me and introduced me to her. She seemed very nice. This is a sad day for you, Claude, said Omar. I'm glad you have your nephew here. You look after him, won't you, Frank? I will, I said. It's a sad day for everyone, really. Not for me, said Omar. We're off to the cinema when this is done. Really, I'm just here for moral support. Thank you, Omar, said Claude. Another old couple were making their way up the path. Who's this? I whispered. Don't you recognise Olaf? Claude whispered back. I'd only ever spoken to Olaf on the phone. I recognised his voice as soon as he opened his mouth. He smiled right at me. Well, we all know who this is, he beamed. Frank Burton Jr. as I live and breathe. Nice to meet you, I said, avoiding the word again. Not far behind them were Graham and a couple more of the betting shop crew. It was starting to feel more like a party. Everyone was smiling, catching up with old friends, celebrating my dad's life. A few more work colleagues arrived. Then it was time to go inside for the service. The minister greeted the congregation with a smile that managed to be both warm and solemn. A proper professional job, that. I wondered if there was a funeral equivalent of TripAdvisor. He'd get a good rating on the basis of a smile alone. Good morning, friends and family of our dearly departed Frank Burton. I must say I've been doing this job for over 35 years, and this must be one of the most unusual funeral services I've ever participated in. Frank, as you know, went missing in 2004. He was finally declared dead in absentia at the end of 2019 at the request of his brother, Claude. He is survived by his son, Frank Jr., who is also here today. But casting aside the circumstances of Frank's disappearance, let us remember Frank today as he was, the man you all knew. He rambled on for a while, loving father, dependable friend, and so on. We said a couple of prayers, then it was Claude's turn to speak. I'd already spotted him taking some not-so-subtle swigs from his hip flask. He hobbled up to the lectern and stared at the notes in his quivering fingers. I'm three years older than Frank, he began. I always saw it as my job to look after him, and sometimes he did need looking after, protecting him from kids throwing stones in the playground or helping him in the right direction as an adult. As some of you may know, Frank didn't always make the most responsible choices. That got a big laugh. Claude looked up sheepishly from his notes, as if he wasn't quite sure what he'd said. And then, he continued, he disappeared and I, well, I didn't quite know how to deal with that. My own brother was God knows where and I couldn't protect him any more. Claude's bunched-up notes tumbled to the floor, and he clutched his eyes with both hands. Through his sobs, his voice became as high-pitched as a squeaky hinge. 
He said something two or three times that I couldn't quite catch. Then I realised it was, Take over, Frank. Without even giving myself time to consider this request, I was on my feet, addressing a room full of relative strangers. I was going to have to say something nice about him. What could I say that was nice about my dad, apart from all the secret stuff? I was about to launch into a nice, vaguely sentimental riff along the lines of I never got to know my dad, but I recently discovered the two of us have an awful lot in common. Then I noticed an additional guest had snuck in at the back. He had his head bowed low, with visible tears streaming from both eyes. Peter Bennington. Why not just tell them everything, I thought, if I announced it right then and there, that my dad was alive and well, that we'd spent a whole day together in London, how would these people react? It would make Bennington's day for a start. Claude would be embarrassed, but he'd also be extremely relieved. Go on, Frank, said my dad's voice in my head. What's the worst that could happen? I can't, I told him. You wouldn't want me to. Is that why you've written it all down in that book of yours? Told the story exactly how it happened, despite me requesting that you keep it all a secret? You are publishing it, right? Yeah, I thought, but no one's actually going to read it. None of these lot will. I'll change all their names just in case they happen to come across it. Think about the book then, said my dad's voice. Wouldn't it be an incredible climax, a proper bit of drama, to have the whole story spilling right out in one big gush? I'd say that alone should secure you a deal on the film rights. Shut up, I thought. I'm doing this my way. Obviously, I'm not really your dad, said the voice. I'm just a different part of you, so either way is your way. The whole room was silent now, everyone staring at me. I cleared my throat and started talking. My dad kidnapped me once, I said. I was six years old. Him and my mum were having some relationship problems and he ran off with me. I think that's the sort of thing Uncle Claude was talking about earlier. Frank Senior did indeed have an occasional difficulty with responsible choices. Another laugh, slightly less raucous this time. We spent a week together before he brought me back, I said, during which time I got to know him better than I ever could have hoped. It turned out my dad had quite a lot to say for himself, as I'm sure some of you have experienced too. More laughter. Anyway, I couldn't keep him quiet. He had plenty of fatherly advice. I was going to say words of wisdom, but I'm afraid to say his words weren't always that wise. But one thing he did say is something that will stay with me forever. He said, I summoned up my best impersonation of my dad and continued. He said, I used to think the world was divided into two basic groups of people, rich and poor, haves and have-nots, bourgeois and proletariat, lucky and unlucky. And I used to think you and I were part of the sprawling mass we call the unlucky ones. But we're not, Frank. Those kind of divisions certainly exist in this world of ours. It's obvious they do. But there's a more important distinction. And this should always be your focus. The most significant division in society today is that of clever and stupid. And we're not stupid, are we, Frank? You're only six years old. And you're already smarter than a lot of grown-ups I know. 
I offered a cheeky wink to the audience. He didn't mention any names. Even Bennington laughed at that. I continued. I don't think I'm being disrespectful to learning disabled people, he said. Except this was the 1980s, and instead of saying learning disabled, he said something else. But he meant no disrespect. He said, I've thought about this little system of mine, and certain people are exempt on the grounds that they process information in a different kind of way. When I use the word stupid, I'm referring to supposedly educated people who still don't have a clue, or maybe they're not educated at all. It doesn't make a difference. Some of the cleverest people I know left school with no qualifications. Some of the stupidest people in the world were privately educated, went to Oxbridge, and now they're running the country. A solid round of applause. But you and me, Frank, he said, we're definitely in the better of those two categories. I don't know what you'll do later in life. You may not be rich. You may have to face all sorts of different struggles, largely caused by various stupid people who don't know any better. But I genuinely believe you can overcome every obstacle under the sun because you have a brain in your head. All you need to do is use it. I paused and ended the dad impression there. I said, I've thought about my dad's theory a lot over the years. As a matter of fact, I may have been unconsciously living my life by those principles this whole time. I've certainly never judged anyone based on where they're from or how much money they've got or what kind of car they drive. I'm sure I've got all of that from that one specific conversation all those years ago. Likewise, I've always been attracted to people who can think in an original way. I got that from him too. And yes, his view was an overly simplistic one. The world isn't really divided into clever and stupid. Most of us have a foot in both camps. My dad certainly did. I probably do myself, if I'm honest. But he was onto something there, and I do think he was a very intelligent man, even if he was often misunderstood. I don't really know what else to say apart from that. You all knew him. You all knew your own version of him. I'm always going to carry my own version of my dad around with me wherever I travel. Let's face it, I'm destined to see my dad every time I look in the mirror. Bizarrely, that last comment received not only a laugh, but a wolf whistle. I laughed along. <laughs> I feel like I should be making a toast here, right? I said. You know, what the hell, I can see a few of you are half-cut. Raise your hip flasks. Uncle Claude obediently held his drink in the air, and so did a few of my dad's old friends, flashing their identical slips of silver. Here's to my dad, Frank Burton Sr., gone but never to be forgotten, even if we wanted to. A cheer. I felt like taking a bow. I didn't want to make this all about me, but that was undoubtedly my single most successful public speaking engagement. If I wanted that kind of reaction from an audience again, I'd probably have to wait until Claude's funeral. Was I right not to have told them the truth? I don't suppose it matters all that much. My dad had intentionally left all these people behind. It was his choice to do so. It was his choice to vanish in the way he did. It was his choice to keep everyone in the dark. Yes, I enjoyed my performance up there at the lectern, just like my dad would have done. As we lowered the empty coffin into the ground, I couldn't help wondering 
if these last 15 years had all been one big performance, a grand illusion, a vanishing act in which one lucky audience member was granted the privilege of being pulled backstage to see how the trick was achieved. And this funeral was all part of that performance, almost as though my dad had planned it all himself. I had no idea where he was, or if our paths would ever cross again, but I'd like to think somehow he knew where we all were right now. He knew we were standing in a field watching an empty coffin being lowered into the ground, a coffin containing nothing but a 30-year-old photograph. Which begs the question, what happened to all the other photographs? He took them, didn't he? He packed them all up in his case and he took them with him. I forgot to ask him about that. I'd be interested to know if he was still carrying those old family photos around with him everywhere he went. Did he still have that massive picture we had up on the living room wall of the three of us standing together and smiling like a regular family? Is that why he kept hold of it? Because even to this day he liked to maintain the illusion that we were just like everyone else? I don't know. I'll never know. And I can't be bothered to care anymore. Later we all went down to the pub and had a buffet lunch and a few drinks. For some unknown reason, Claude had hired a DJ. All I'll say on that subject is, if my dad was actually dead, he'd be turning in his grave. I mingled for a while, had some polite, although somewhat awkward chats with some of the guys I'd interrogated a few years earlier. And then I met Martin. You remember Martin, right? Martin was one of the names on the list. But Noddy and I never got round to interrogating Martin. It was just as well as it turns out. He wouldn't have known anything the others hadn't already divulged. He was very interesting though, Martin. A very interesting man. I can't go into the details here, maybe another time. I just want you to know that Martin is one of the good guys and I'm glad that I met him. You may wonder what that's all about and I suppose you'll just have to keep on wondering. I've already said too much. And that's it. Thank you for listening. I'm very pleased with this book myself. And if you enjoyed it too, please do help me to spread the word. Tell people about it. Everyone needs to know that this thing exists in the world. Regular Ragbag. We'll be back again next week. You know, the podcast where I play music and mess about with crazy ideas and all that sort of thing. It's back next week. Farewell for now, Ragbag Alliance. Don't forget your mission. Yeah, mission. See you soon. Podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow Britpod Scene on Twitter to find out more.